0: I'm both happy and sad to announce that this will be the final sermon in our series, Born Again Behavior in the book of James. We began on November 3rd of last year, 2019. It's taken us nearly six months and 23 sermons to get through this great book. It's been an awesome journey. In my opinion, it's been very convicting. But it's also been very comforting as God has used it to test and affirm our faith. Last week we looked at James' exhortation to battered believers to seek help if they are spiritually depleted because of their suffering. He told them to, to go to the elders of their churches to be prayed for and anointed with oil so they could be delivered from spiritual exhaustion, be spiritually energized, and be spiritually restored in fellowship with God through forgiveness if they confessed whatever sins they had. He also told them uh, to confess their sins to one another and to pray together, which would promote accountability and resolve some of their personal and or interpersonal issues. Now, according to Luke 8, the visible church has four types of people in it. First. It has people with hardened hearts, verse 5. When they hear the word, the devil comes along and snatches it before it germinates. We see that in verse 12. Second, it has people with shallow hearts, verse 6. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But when trials come, they fall away because they have no roots. We see that in verse 13. R. Kent Hughes has a great comment on that part here. He says, This is especially common today because so much theology is man-centered. Christ is preached with the emphasis on what He can do for us, and receiving Him is viewed as doing Him a favor. This shallow theology airbrushes the doctrine of sin and minimizes the holiness of God, producing bogus converts. And then third... The visible church has people in it that have infested hearts. Verse 7, when they hear the word, it is choked by the cares of this world and they bear no fruit. Verse 14, a man can literally sit in church for years and never hear the word because all he does is worry about his riches and worry about his pleasures. His ultimate concern in life is keeping up with the Joneses. He buys things he doesn't need with money he doesn't have to impress people he doesn't even like. And then fourth, the visible church has people in it that have fertile hearts. Verse 8, they are regenerate. They are born again. They are actual true believers. And when they hear the word, they hold fast to it in honesty and bear much fruit with patience verse 15. Now I say all this just to sort of build a little context for where we're going in this text. In the final section of his incredible epistle, James anticipates that folks in the congregations he wrote to will wander away from the truth because of the suffering and persecution they were experiencing, thus proving they were among those with shallow hearts. He then instructs fellow believers to go after these wanderers and bring them back. I have entitled this message, Rescuing a Wanderer. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at the last two verses in the entire epistle and the last two verses in this chapter. And that is verses 19 and 20. I'd like to go ahead and read our section and pray for God's help before we actually get to work. Let's read it together. This is the next thing James says. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we call upon you now, we humble ourselves, and we ask that you would help us, help us to hear the Word, understand the Word, apply the Word, believe the Word, help us to do all that we're supposed to do with the Word. Help us to understand that as believers, what we're actually called to do, and that is to go out and rescue wanderers. And and it could be, Father, that we have a wanderer or two viewing this video, and I pray that you that you prick their conscience and that you convict them of their sin and that you lead them to yourself. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be looking at verse 19 first. Please look at it with me. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, dot, 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 stop there. The section starts with James' favorite title for believers, brothers. He used it 17 times in this epistle. Brother and sister believers is whom he is addressing here. That's who he's pointing to. That's who he's talking to. That's who he's trying to exhort to do something here. He wants the believers' attention here. And they are the, the potential evangelists whom God will use to reach any wanderers who go astray. And James begins by saying, if anyone among you... Now, he actually uses this phrase three times in chapter 5. We see it back in verse 13a. He said, is anyone among you suffering? And then in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And then here in verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Each use represents a different category of people. You've got the suffering, you've got the sick, and you've got those who have gone astray. And we can see here three sets of instructions to each of those categories of people. James instructs the the suffering to pray, he instructs the sick to call on the elders. And he instructs fellow believers to go after those who have wandered from the truth and gone astray. Now the phrase, among you, indicates that these wanderers were not only inside these churches, but that they were actually professing believers. You know, they professed faith in Christ. But they also bounced when persecution and suffering came. And this reveals something about their faith. It reveals that it was only on the surface, that it was actually shallow. Now, true saving faith will remain steadfast in trials. It will endure. The person who possesses it will keep believing and believing no matter what is thrown at them. They will be like Job, right? We, we look at the life of Job in the book of Job, and we're going to study that in depth in the coming weeks. But we look at the life of Job, and he experienced more catastrophe than most human beings will in a lifetime. And what did he do throughout that catastrophe? He kept believing. He never cursed God. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't complain or that he wasn't confused, but he never turned away from his faith, and he never cursed God. And and the person who possesses true saving faith will be like Job in that regard. They will keep on believing and believing. Now, a great question to ask here is why? Why do they do this or how do they do this? Is it because of something in them? Is it because they're just such great Christians or that they have such great strength and power? No, it it really doesn't have to do with them. The reason why we keep believing through trials and suffering and all of these difficulties is because the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, he protects our faith. He preserves our faith, and he will bring it to completion, right? Hebrews 12 to Philippians 1, verse 6. Now, the Greek word for wanderers is planal, planal. And from it, we get the English word planet. The word picture here is of a person wandering the planet. It kind of reminds me of David Carradine in that 1970s hit, Kung fu. Do you remember that show? I used to watch it when I was a kid. His name was Cain, and, and he wandered the American Old West, and, and he would go around solving problems and encouraging people and defending those who couldn't defend themselves. He was, a, generally speaking, a, a pretty good man, a wise man, and a kind man, and a caring man. But the wanderer James speaks of here is not a, a helpful kung fu master like Cain. He or she is a spiritually lost person who who is wandering down or along the broad road that leads to destruction. Now, there are two types of wandering. There might be more, but I have two. There is what I call theological wandering, which we call apostasy. The term apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, which means defection, departure, revolt, or rebellion. When a professing Christian deviates from the basic fundamental teachings of Scripture, from the non-negotiable fixed doctrines of the church, or from historical orthodoxy, what the church has always believed and taught, he or she commits apostasy. He or she becomes apostate. And there is also moral wandering. Moral wandering occurs when a professing Christian leaves the biblical lifestyle they once lived to pursue worldly sinful pleasures. They become like Demas who abandoned the Apostle Paul because he was in love with the things of this world, 2 Timothy 4.10. I would say there is no shortage of moral wandering in churches today. This is, happens because of a number of reasons, but the biggest one would be because of the preaching that's happening in churches. You've got a lot of grace-only, love-only, sin-avoiding, repentanceless preaching. That, that kind of preaching has paved the way and cultivated sin, a sinful environment within churches where, where these people who profess Christ just pretty much do whatever they want and then claim grace. And I would say another thing that has contributed to this is easy believism, right? Easy believism is basically a repentanceless gospel. Easy believism has has swept multitudes of unconverted sinners into churches. And what are they there doing now? They're within these churches and they're spreading immorality and sin like a virus. Believers today are seemingly more concerned about COVID-19 and their own personal health than about the health of Christ's Bride, than about the reputation of Christ's Bride in this fallen world. Which one do you think Christ is mostly concerned with, COVID or His Bride? It's not COVID, He stands among the the golden lampstands and he judges his churches with the double-edged sword of his mouth. His word. Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 and 16. I'm not suggesting that, that we shouldn't be concerned about COVID. I think we should. But I think we should be more concerned about personal piety and purity and holiness That's what we should be ultimately concerned about. We should care about the bride of Christ and her reputation in this lost, fallen world. That's what we should be concerned with. Now, since James said, wanders from the truth, it would appear that he was concerned with theological wandering here. But we need to remember that theological wandering always leads to moral wandering, or vice versa. The two actually go hand in hand. If a professing believer abandons the Bible's clear teachings on a subject, especially a moral issue, it will be because they are either practicing that sinful thing, or that they plan to practice it, or that they want to support others who are practicing it. And we see this with the the sin of homosexuality, and the Bible's stance on that, the church's position on that, Christians have, Christians have caved to that moral issue because they either want to practice it, plan to practice it, are practicing it, or they just want to support others who are really nice people who are practicing it. But those are no reasons to abandon the clear teachings of Scripture. When you cave on the issue of homosexuality or sexual immorality or any of those things, you become apostate. Now, R. Kent Hughes wrote something really good here. He said, this is not simply a doctrinal wandering from the truth here, but a wandering in lifestyle. The Hebrew mind, and especially that of James, never separated the intellectual from the behavioral or the doctrinal from the moral, as the Greeks did. He says, truth was something people did. And I would say truth was something back then that people lived out in every facet of their life. Now the Greek word for truth is a beautiful word it is aletheia, aletheia. It refers primarily to the gospel. And what is the gospel? The death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. That is what people had wandered from here. They had wandered from the gospel which is the only message of salvation. They had not wandered from some non-essential doctrine. They had not wandered from uh, one of those perplexing or confusing or profound doctrines like the doctrine of election. They had wandered from the doctrine of the gospel, the most basic and fundamental doctrine of all the Bible. That's what they had abandoned. They had left the work of Christ behind. I don't even know what facet of it they, they denied. Maybe they denied the resurrection. Since some back in those days were saying that our resurrection had only happened, we just simply don't know which facet. But we do know that they rejected Alethia, truth, the gospel. And I'll tell you what—that's that's, that's a, a completely different animal here when you when you deny or reject the gospel. And and they're wandering from the gospel. It proves something about them, doesn't it? It proves that they were unconverted and not part of the true invisible church. But this fact did not dissuade James from exhorting his fellow believers to actually go after them. It didn't stop him from doing that. And his exhortation begins with the phrase, and someone brings him back. What does it mean to bring someone back? Was James exhorting his fellow believers to to bring the wanderers back to their churches? No. What good would that do? They had been in those churches before, maybe for a long time, but they remained unconverted. They were tares among the wheat, they were goats among the sheep. And we need to remember that that the goal is not to get people into our churches. I really need to get up on the roof of RHC here and shout this from the rooftop. There are a lot of pastors in this community leading churches that don't understand this. Men, our goal is not to get people into our churches. That is not our primary goal. Our goal is to see people saved and added to the true church. That is our goal. But many churches today... Don't even preach the gospel, which makes them more like social centers or clubs. And churches in James' day weren't much better. Read Paul's epistles and you will see how quickly the gospel vanished or got distorted in the churches he planted. Read the first chapter of the book of Galatians. They gave themselves over to a false gospel. Reread Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Some of the churches that John wrote to there were on the verge of dying. In fact, one had already died spiritually, Laodicea. Bringing these people, these wanderers, back to their churches was not what James was pointing to, not what he was exhorting these fellow believers to go and do here. Was he then exhorting them to bring the wanderers back to the truth? I don't think so. These folks never fully believed the truth to begin with because they did not possess true saving faith. They had heard the truth, they had professed truth, but they didn't believe the truth like true believers do. They were what I call Lord, Lord Christians, right? Those who do things in the name of the Lord Jesus while disbelieving and while practicing lawlessness Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, or through 23. Attempting to return an unregenerate wanderer to the truth would be an exercise in futility, like casting pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6. The only people we can turn back to the truth are true believers who have somehow deviated from some truth. But I've never met an off-track believer who, you know, true believer who deviated from the truth, who actually rejected the gospel as these folks did. That's, like I said a moment ago, that's a whole different animal. There is a major difference between rejecting the gospel and rejecting some non-essential doctrine. One leads to spiritual death. The other is ignorance. Big difference. If James was not exhorting his fellow believers to bring these wanderers back to their churches or to the truth, what was he referring to? I believe he was exhorting them to bring these wanderers back from spiritual death. And verse 20 seems to support my theological theory. It says, save his soul from death. James is exhorting his fellow believers to go and preach the gospel to these wanderers so their souls can be saved from death. I believe that's what he's doing here. Even if they had heard the gospel before, they needed to hear it again and again and again and again. I heard the gospel many times before I was actually converted, I had even prayed the prayer of salvation on several occasions. But one day as I was listening to a faithful minister preach the gospel, divine power came into me and I was forever changed. I haven't been the same person since then. Doesn't mean that I haven't struggled with sin, but I am a different man than I was before. This divine power came into me. Think about faith for a moment. Faith is a gift from God, right? Ephesians 2.8. And faith comes by what? by the hearing of the word of Christ, the gospel, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. This is why it is so essential for us to preach the gospel and keep preaching the gospel and keep preaching the gospel and to never deviate away from the gospel. We can preach the whole counsel of God. That's what we're commanded to do. But within the preaching of the whole counsel of God, we are to always be pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. That's what we are to do. Now the phrase brings him back is epistrepho in Greek. It means to turn someone around. It is used in Acts chapter 15 verse 19 to describe Gentiles, non-Jews, who turned from their sins to God for salvation. That is the meaning here in our text. That is what James means. To bring a wanderer back, is to help him or her turn from their sins to God for salvation. Now we know that the Holy Spirit alone, He's the only one who can bring a lost sinner back to God. He's the only one who can actually save, redeem. He's the only one who can regenerate. But we also know, That the Holy Spirit works through our preaching. He works through our conversation. He works through our encouragements. He works through our dialogues, exhortations, whatever it is that we're saying to wanderers. He works through all of those things. He works through our praise to accomplish this work, doesn't he? He does it through people and through the efforts of people. Not just any people, but through the efforts of God's people. And my question to you at this point is this. Has God ever worked through you to bring a wanderer to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is a stupendous matter. I'd consider it one of the highest and most most joyful things us believers can experience on this side of glory. F.F. Bruce, one of my favorite theologians, and he's certainly probably one of the greatest theologians of our time, Um, He he has sold uh, countless millions of copies of his commentaries. He's influenced thousands and thousands of Bible students and pastors, including myself. In fact, I'd say his commentary on Acts, which I used years ago when we were going through Acts, is one of the best. This is what he said at the end of his career as he was about to, to retire. He said this, For many years now, The greater part of my time has been devoted to the study and interpretation of the Bible in academic and non-academic settings alike. I regard this as a most worthwhile and rewarding occupation. And listen to what he says. There is only one form of ministry which I should rate more highly. That is the work of an evangelist to which I have not been called. That's what he said. According to this statement, Dr. Bruce considered evangelism the highest form of ministry because an evangelist has the unique privilege of being used by God to lead sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is what James is inviting fellow believers to become. Evangelists, those whom God works through, to preach the gospel, and to lead wanderers to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now in the last line, James motivates his fellow believers to obey his instruction here by describing what will happen if they evangelize and bring back a wanderer. Let's move to verse 20. James says this next, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if a fellow believer brings back a wanderer, they have actively participated in the saving of that person's soul and forgiveness they were the human instrument God used to bring the gospel to that wanderer, to to reason with that wanderer, and to pray with that wanderer. Now, notice how James calls the one who wanders a sinner. The Greek word for sinner is humartolos. Humartolos. It refers to the unforgiven those who are still in their sins those who are still separated by sin from god it is used in matthew chapter 9 verse 13 where jesus said i came not to call the righteous but sinners the use of this this greek word here in verse 20 it rules out the foolish notion that these wanderers were Actual believers who had given up on the gospel and gone astray. Who had sort of fallen from grace. No, these people were not believers who fell from grace. They were sinners, not believers. They were sinners, not brothers. And sinners need to have their souls saved from death. They need their, their multitude of sins covered by the blood of Jesus Believers, brothers, do not need these things. Their souls are already saved and their sins are already covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the word death we see here refers to eternal death or the the second death. You know, it is the the final state of of the unrepentant disbelieving sinner. Revelation chapter 20 verses 14 and 15. The phrase, a multitude of sins, describes the weight of sin each unrepentant, disbelieving sinner bears. They have committed a multitude of sins, and the weight of all those sins will pull them down into hell like a ship anchor plummets toward the seafloor. When a sinner is brought back from his or her wandering, it is a a grand and glorious event because of what they have been saved from, eternal death and a multitude of sins. And there is literally, when this happens, there is literal rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Again, What is James doing here? He is inviting his fellow believers to be participants in this grand work and to become the recipients of the great joy that comes when a sinner repents and puts their trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now, here's a fact. We were all wandering sinners at one time. Me and you. No one is born Christian That just doesn't happen. Some people think they were born as a Christian. Maybe they were born to Christian parents, raised in a Christian church, but they didn't become a Christian until later, until they understood their sin and repented and believed in Jesus Christ. No one is born a Christian. And we were all wanderers at one time. And part of the reason why we're no longer wandering sinners is because a faithful believer preached the gospel to us. And obviously because the Holy Spirit worked through that preaching to bring us to faith and repentance. But we do not want to deny the fact that there was a human instrument involved in that process. I can remember years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I was at Big Valley and Rick Countryman would passionately preach the gospel. He was the human instrument God was using. And one day as I was listening, things changed forever. God worked through countrymen's ministry. God worked through whoever it was that was there who helped you to understand the gospel, helped you to repent and believe. God worked through their ministry right there to help you do that. He worked through them. He worked through their prayers to bring you to himself. God worked through them to bring you to himself. I don't know why God has chosen to do it this way. God can do anything he likes. He has infinite, omnipotent power. He doesn't need human instruments like you and me. But he has chosen to work through human instruments. We don't ever want to discount the value of the human instrument. And I think that's what James is trying to convey to the people he wrote to here. You think about that moment when that person helped to lead you to Christ and to repentance, do you know what happened in that moment? Not only did you get saved, but all of heaven rejoiced. All of heaven rejoiced. And so did we. Did we not rejoice? I rejoiced when I realized I was saved. And so did all the Christians that I knew before, whom I went and told. They all rejoiced as well. Some of them said, I had been praying for you for years and years and years. In fact, Lincoln Brewster, who's a pretty big music guy, he couldn't believe that I got saved because he knew how terrible of a sinner I was before I was saved. He was blown away. He says, if you got saved, then there must be a God. That's what he said. And I said, whatever, dude. And I shook his hand. James ends this incredible epistle, this whole letter. He ends it with an exhortation for fellow believers, for you and I, to go to wandering sinners, armed with the mighty gospel, and bring them back from spiritual death. The question is will we obey? Will we obey? The prophet Ezekiel was given a similar exhortation, given similar instructions. Listen to what God said to him in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. It's in the bulletin. God said this to him, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If Ezekiel refused to obey the word of God and go out and warn the wicked to repent and be saved, God would hold him accountable. The blood of the wicked would be on his hands. Some of us believers might think, well, that's Old Covenant theology. That's in the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us. That warning doesn't apply to us. It was specific to Ezekiel. Well, we would do whatever we can to spin that in a way that it doesn't apply to us. And that is a great question to ask as well, isn't it? Does, does it apply to us? Well, the Apostle Paul believed it did. In Acts chapter 20, verses 24 through 26 he told the Ephesian elders that he was innocent of the blood of all because he had testified to the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we must reach out to wandering sinners with the gospel. We must do this. It is our responsibility. It is our commission mark chapter 16 verses 15 and 16 obviously matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 the great commission if we refuse to do this we will not only receive divine chastisement from our heavenly father but we will forfeit the unique joy that can come only when 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 we return a rescuer from their wandering. There is a unique joy that comes when a wanderer is rescued, when a a wandering sinner repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a unique joy that comes from that. It doesn't come from anything else that I've experienced yet. And like I said earlier, there's nothing like it. I totally agree with F.F. Bruce. Brothers and sisters, may we make it part of our our daily schedule and calendar to to share the gospel with sinners who are wandering, whether they be under our own roof, in our neighborhoods, somewhere. Maybe we've had a falling out with somebody at church. We need to be in the business of, of rescuing wanderers. That's our responsibility. That's our commission. And if we go out and do it, God promises great joy, a unique, satisfying joy that only comes from that endeavor. Let's make it a point to get out there and do it. Amen.